Hello, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. Growing in the Weather Hill, an occasional column from the southwest corner of the state, where we grow with the dryland traditions of the Colorado Plateau. The Weather Hill is known for its vivid red color, consistent ability to support dryland crops, and as a foundation material for adobe brick. Dirt as Mulch by Carolyn Dunmeyer and this is from Colorado Gardener, Early Spring 2021 edition. When I started my garden in the Weather Hill loam more than 25 years ago, one of the first things I did was a soil test. The results showed a well-balanced loam with average pH and good mineral content. What it didn't include is how to enliven this red clay dirt to support a thriving garden and orchard during the coming years of drought, increasing temperatures, and Wizard of Oz-worthy dust storms. Over the years, I've had some spectacular successes, such as dryland rhubarb and asparagus, and dismal failures, like the year when grasshoppers ate my entire garden, including the spectacular rhubarb. Through it all, I have adhered to an organic ethic and experimental spirit that keeps me growing as well. This year, my new growth is focused on transitioning my garden to no-till. This is a formidable challenge because my first gardening experience was in the now-famous Boulder Community Garden in the late 1980s where I dutifully employed the trendy French double-digging technique. The deep spade work yielded encouraging results and a sore back even then. Now I have to reverse my thinking to employ a much less invasive method for managing the soil that saves my back and the critters and fungi that I have so lovingly curated here. The hurdle I have yet to clear is the type of mulch to use in a place where dryland traditions dictate that bare dirt is best. My garden is surrounded by dryland bean fields that miraculously emerge each June without the benefit of any surface moisture. The secret lies not in the bean seed that is planted, although the cajon bean is adapted to our local growing conditions but in how it is planted. The farmers will drill to a depth of up to a foot to get the bean seed started in the damp soil beneath the dry red dirt. Hopi farmers, the native dryland farmers of the Colorado Plateau, developed this planting strategy for their cornfields centuries ago, planting a handful of blue corn seeds at the depth of soil moisture. The resulting cornfields have bunches of corn plants widely spaced across a sandy wash looking nothing like the columns of corn soldiers found in the Midwest. Both the bean and corn farmers are diligent 
about eliminating any competition in their fields by tilling frequently during the growing season. Plant growth of any kind is not tolerated outside the clumps or rows. On the surface, this looks like the opposite of no-till. But after several failed attempts at using other types of mulch, I believe it is an ingenious adaptation of the when life gives you lemons approach to mulching. My first attempt employed weed cloth to protect tender shrublings as part of a reclamation project to convert dryland alfalfa field into a wildlife habitat. We were required to install weed cloth to discourage weed and alfalfa regrowth. After days of back-breaking work and frustrating hours with a cloth-burying contraption attached to a tractor, we had ten rows of seedlings tucked under a few acres of black ground cloth. In no time at all, weeds grew up in the openings for the shrubs, and the first windstorm untucked much of the cloth, so it was soon flapping in the wind. Within a year, the intense ultraviolet sunlight at 7,000 feet elevation degraded what remained into tatters. Mercifully, the remnants of the ground cloth have since been buried in several inches of red dirt. In the garden, I attempted to use abandoned alfalfa hay as mulch, in part to create a walkway between the garden rows during our infamous mud season and as potential weed deterrent. This mulch experiment proved to be a failure. The hay mostly blew away in the spring winds, and what remained was mashed into the red clay soil, creating adobe bricks. Weatherhill loam has the characteristics of many fine-grained clay soils in that it seals off, causing rain and irrigation to run off rather than percolate into the soil. Introducing woody compost is one solution. However, it is also the same recipe used for making adobe brick. Most recently, I tried a cover crop, thinking that mulch that anchors itself might be the solution. However, planting anything late in the growing season at this elevation can prove challenging from both an irrigation and hardiness point of view. My first cover crop was a partial success in that I had good germination and growth. Perhaps too good, because the experiment turned into a persistent weed problem. I obviously need to learn the art of solarizing. The truth is that dryland farmers on the Colorado Plateau have successfully exploited the difference between dirt and soil for centuries. Dirt is mulch because the living soil is buried beneath it in the ground moisture. Implementing no-till practices with dirt mulch presents the challenge of managing this mulch when surface moisture arrives and weeds inevitably sprout. Dryland practices demand that all competition be eliminated with light tilling. In practice, this tilling does probably not violate the principles of no-till since it only affects the dirt mulch. 
However, as our climate becomes hotter and drier, reliable ground moisture is largely unreachable, putting our dryland farming heritage in peril. For the first time in memory, local farmers did not plant dryland pinto beans in 2018 because there wasn't enough ground moisture. As predicted, with the advent of irrigation in the dryland fields, the time has come for new farming and gardening practices that manage and protect our living soil. That means finding a mulch that works with the red dirt while suppressing weeds, preserving the living soil, and minimizing soil disturbance. Thicker flakes of hay might work in the garden, or a cover crop may yet prove a viable mulching strategy with the right seed and irrigation plan. Some dryland farmers are now leaving wheat stubble in the fields. The shift from blown-in dirt as mulch to a no-till environment has a ways to go here in the dryland-based fields and gardens of the Colorado Plateau. We understand the need for healthy soil. We just need some ingenious growers to discover how to protect that soil with a mulch that is cheap and easy to manage while discouraging weeds and preserving every drop of moisture. If dirt were dollars. Icky in the garden. Cats and snail traps? They mix only too well. By David Hull. And this is from Green Prince, Spring 2021 edition. One morning in early spring, a scruffy-looking, short-haired, gray-and-white cat showed up on my front porch. I really didn't want to adopt a pet, so I did not feed or pet or encourage the animal in any way. Regrettably, the cat didn't take the hint. The next thing I knew, I was putting food and water in bowls on the porch. He never left. I named him Ichabod. For some reason, he reminded me of Ichabod Crane from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Unfortunately, my three-year-old niece couldn't pronounce Ichabod, so she shortened the cat's name to Icky, and it stuck. It was mid-May by the time winter released its grip here in northern New York, and I could start preparing my flower and vegetable gardens. Icky followed me around as I weeded, watered, and pruned. Then he usually fell asleep in the warm sunshine and napped until I called him in for his dinner. While working in the yard, I noticed that the garden was being invaded by snails. Well, maybe invaded is the wrong word, considering the speed at which snails move. But the newly formed vegetation was besieged with the slimy critters. They nibbled the nasturtiums, bit the begonias, gobbled the gladiolus, and devoured the daisies. All at, well, a snail's pace. A local garden center suggested placing shallow bowls of beer around the garden. Supposedly, the fermentation odor of the beer attracts the snails. They sip the liquid, slide into the bowl, and drown. 
The next afternoon, I stopped at the market, bought a six-pack of cheap beer and shallow bowls, and set out snail traps. That evening, just like always, I called for Icky to come eat. Usually, the cat quickly emerges out of the twilight and hurries in the door. But not that evening. I called a few more times. When he did not appear, I slipped on my shoes and searched for him. Iggy suddenly stumbled out from between two rose bushes. He shook his head, turned in a circle, and fell forward on the ground. Something was obviously very wrong. I rushed to Icky, scooping him up in my arms. He purred loudly and attempted to lick my cheek. One whiff of the cat's breath, and I knew what was wrong. Icky, I exclaimed, you're drunk. A quick inspection of the garden confirmed my fears. Most of the beer-filled bowls were empty. I immediately called my vet. Oh dear, said the vet. Beer can be toxic to cats. How much did he drink? At least half a bottle, I explained. He's really plastered. Well, just try to keep him calm. Hopefully he'll sleep it off in a few hours. He's already sound asleep on the couch, I said. I'll keep an eye on him. Iggy didn't move all night, and, after a tentative morning, recovered in time to join me in the garden the following afternoon. Nowadays, I use bowls filled with a non-alcoholic sugar, water, and yeast mixture to help control the snails. It also seems to control my cat. He took one sip the first time I set it out and spat it out. I could tell by his scrunched-up face he thought it tasted, well, icky. The Seven Natives That Will Show Up For You by Lee Recca and this is from Colorado Gardener, Early Spring 2021 edition. Growing native wildflowers can be exasperating. You see them prospering all over wild areas without any help from humans. But try growing them in your garden, pampering them all the way, and they struggle or don't even germinate at all. After several years of disappointing results growing natives, I planted several experimental plots. Over time, I've discovered that there are quite a few plants you can depend on to germinate, grow, and flower in the very first season, if you can make sure to provide some basic care. Here's my A-list of surefire wildflowers to grow from seed. Blue Flax. I stand in awe of this marvelous plant. Revered for centuries, it has so many uses. Its stalks are used for fiber, linen, and for fuel. The seeds are nutritious and medicinal. It is the basis for linoleum and linseed oil. Blue flax is very prolific 
and its seed heads appear throughout the summer as tiny balls on sturdy green stems. Each attractive blue flower only lasts a day or so, but the plant blooms for a long time, starting in early summer. Cracking open the seed hulls liberates the black seeds. Easy to collect, easy to sow, easy to germinate. La Vita Daisy Most of the daisies are very easy to grow, but I chose this one as my favorite. It is not invasive and happily coexists with other natives, filling in a garden plot nicely. The basil leaves can often be evergreen. Blanket Flower The native variety is perennial and doesn't have red on its petals. Even though it looks like a plant that needs years to establish, it grows quite vigorously and will reward you with flowers the first year. From a base of lance-shaped hairy leaves, several stems are sent up to support large, sunflower-like blooms. The central brown or maroonish discs become bristly gray seed heads that are easily collected. It likes a sunny area and will reward you with many blooms over several years. Mexican Hat Also called prairie coneflower, this yellow-petaled flower can grow as high as two and a half feet and loves gravelly soil on roadsides, slopes, and mesa tops. The seeds are easy to collect as they form the crown of the sombrero. Mexican hat is easier to grow than other coneflowers and blooms well into the fall. Golden Banner This early bloomer grows fast and forms patches that also spread via roots and tendrils. A member of the pea family, Golden Banner, enriches the often poor gravelly soils it likes to grow in. The large pea pods are easy to collect. I store them in brown paper bags from the grocery store, shelling and cleaning the seeds when inclement weather comes. Colorado Columbine It is a happy coincidence that our state flower is easy to grow. Columbine seems to be just as happy in sun or shade, although when growing in sunny spots, it will need a bit more water. And in shady spots, it might have fewer blooms. Columbine blooms early in the summer and is a herald of blue skies and warm weather. When its trumpet-like seed head appears, you can just tip it and pour the glossy black seeds into your hand. This flower is so prolific it would be a shame to take all the seeds, leave some to create new plants, and for wildlife. Broom Senecio This wildflower can grow into a small bush or clump. Springy stems hold the star-like lemon-yellow flowers high, bouncing in the wind. A late bloomer its flowers can be seen well into the fall, preferring disturbed soils on hillsides and meadows. The fluffy seed heads are easy to collect if the wind doesn't get them first. Although Broom Senecio is listed as a perennial, my experience is that it often doesn't come back, 
so be sure to help it along by collecting and sowing the seeds. How to plant native seeds. Many people have expressed their frustration with me about getting wildflower seeds to grow. It seems like it would be as easy as pie when you see wildflowers growing all over the mountains, seemingly thriving in harsh climates and conditions. Therein lies a clue to success. Instead of babying the seeds with rich potting soil, heated greenhouses, and sheltered conditions, the opposite treatment works better. My number one advice is to scatter these seeds in midwinter, just when you see a snow front coming in. Instead of burying them under layers of peat moss or loam, let the snow and rain carry them down beneath the protective layers of leaves and organic debris. Whatever you do, don't remove the clayey soils that form the substrate. The flowers need this anchor to form strong roots so they can come back year after year. Simply let leaves and other organic matter accumulate and decay into lovely hummus. If you want to hurry the process along, you can sprinkle compost over the planting areas to speed the decaying process. You can also water the leaves with a sprinkler during warm or windy spells. Another trick I use is to harvest duff, that finely textured debris that accumulates under bushes, and scatter it around. I also scrape off the mounds of anthills and use this sandy material to mix in. Don't do either of these things in spring, summer, or fall, of course, or insects will eat or rearrange your plantings. And winter is the time when living things are safely underground. Kelly's Gardening Q&A by Kelly Grummans. And this is from Colorado Gardener, Early Spring 2021 Edition. Question. Some of our cactuses and agaves got a lot of damage in that October deep freeze. We've had them for years, and this is the first time that they've gotten winter damage. What can we do to avoid this in the future? Answer. Tell me about it. I did see this kind of damage on some of my xeric plants also. When these extreme freezes occur in the fall before the tissues of these evergreen plants have hardened, we can expect to see this type of damage. Generally, the plants will recover, but they can look scarred for a season or two. Because of this type of damage, I've covered my agaves with a sheer frost cloth in early October every fall. This seems to protect the plant from extreme changes in temperature. The freezing and thawing of the tissues occurs more slowly, allowing the plant cells to adapt more easily. You can find frost cloth at most garden centers and online. It comes in various grades of density. A low to moderate density is sufficient. I would only apply it to plants that you have had trouble with. I first started using it years ago on some of the more sensitive dwarf conifers and broadleaf evergreens such as rhododendrons.
This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. We invite you to please stay tuned for our next program. Okay. 